I can have a chance at seeing. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, as we turn now, pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we hope in you. And uh, we don't put our hope in something dead. We don't hope in something uh, that's nothing, that's immaterial. We have a living hope. Um, and and we, we hope now not in, in wishful thinking, but in a confidence, knowing that the one who has come in time and, and space and history is coming again. We pray that having this hope in us, we would purify ourselves. We, we pray that having this hope of Advent, that you would bring us peace. And today as we look at, at Joseph, a man you love, and we, we follow him towards, uh, towards Christ, we pray that you would give us, uh, that you would give us peace, and you would give us a, a, a sense of confident expectancy, and as we've already come into your presence and, and taken communion and, and Developed, attempted to develop this, this longing, this confident longing for the presence of God. We pray that we would have even greater appetites, greater capacity for your presence, and that you would satisfy every ache, every hunger that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today is the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, it is traditionally the week that focuses on um, which we'll do a little bit. Um, I'm excited to look at one of my favorite characters in the Christmas story, which is Joseph. And, and really what we're doing uh, this year at Advent is we're looking at two couples, two families. The Christmas story is centered around two families. You have Mary and Joseph, and you have Zacharias and Elizabeth. Last week we looked at Zacharias, and if you missed that, you can go online and check it out. Um, this week we have Joseph, next week we'll look at Elizabeth, and then the final week of Advent we'll look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, so Luke, in, in the Gospel of Luke, it starts, he starts the Christmas story with Zacharias. Matthew starts his Christmas story with Joseph. Um, so both evangelists feel the need to begin with the dads, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, last week, you know, I wished you all a happy new year, according to the church calendar. So today I'm going to wish you a happy Father's Day according to no one's calendar except mine. Um, happy Father's Day. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, and then we'll read uh, from chapter 2 as well. I'll, I'll tell you where in a bit. <clears throat> and we'll be introduced here to, to Joseph. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good lines from the, these families, right? Zacharias and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary. Zacharias had... Uh, uh, of course, he was silenced before then. He has this dialogue with the angel, and he says, how can these things be? And Mary has, you know, a beautiful one line that she's kind of remembered for, which is, let it be done to your, according to your servant. Uh, Elizabeth, we'll look at next week, says, this is how the Lord has visited me and lifted the reproach off of me. So as you think of those things, as I read this, as you follow along, I want you to be thinking of your favorite, uh, your favorite thing that Joseph ever said, your favorite verse in the Bible that includes the wisdom of this godly man, Joseph. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And then in chapter 2, you have the story of the wise men, the magi, visiting and being guided by the star. But their visit brought the unwelcome attention of Herod. So in chapter 2, if you look in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then, after a time in Egypt, many years actually, it's time to go home. And Joseph received another dream. In Matthew 2, verse 19, it says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And that's just about all we get about Joseph in the words of Scripture. Uh, He features very briefly in Luke's version of the story. Uh, And then other than a few passing mentions, that's it. And if you've thought of your favorite Joseph quote by now, then I want to see your Bible because it's got extra stuff in it. Joseph doesn't have any lines. There is no Joseph quote. Um, Now, I've I've been thinking about this guy, Joseph, a lot, actually. Joseph is a bit of a fascination for me. Um, I've been thinking about him probably more than any other character in Scripture other than Christ, of course, for a a couple of years. He has my attention. And one of the reasons, or one of the things that started me on this train of thought was when I realized that Joseph is a a silent player on the nativity stage. He doesn't say a word in the whole story. Joseph never says anything. In the Gospels, he's the strong silent type. Which isn't so strange. I mean, there are several of the twelve apostles who don't have any recorded speaking parts either. But for some reason, it felt more surprising for Joseph, because you feel like he should have said something, right? I've had a few conversations with people about this, and usually when I mention this bit about Joseph not having any recorded words, people say, really? And they want to thumb through the Gospels and check it out, because you, you almost don't believe it. You're like, well, he should have said something. I read one, one place where a pastor calls Joseph St. Joseph the Silent. <laughs> and and that, maybe, maybe that's what struck me, because I realized that no one will ever be able to speak of St. Sam the Silent. Like, that will never be in the history books. Um, now, though the history books will be silent about St. Sam, very likely. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that the second week of Advent is traditionally about peace. The first week is about hope. The second, peace. Then we have joy and love 
and, and there are many ways the peace of God may manifest in one's life, but one of the stereotypical ways we imagine peace is with silence, stillness, silent night, holy night, right? We couple these things almost like they're the same thing. We say, I'd like some peace and brownies. Uh, peace and quiet, yeah. Peace and, like that, that's what we, we take peace and we almost, um, almost subliminally attach to it silence, a holy silence. And Joseph, Joseph gives us an interesting example of someone who does some monumentally important things, some powerful things, some essential things, and doesn't talk about it. Praise the Lord for people like that. Amen? Amen. So one thing I want to see in Joseph is that he's a listener. He's slow to speak and quick to hear. And he listens to the best of them, angels, three times. And I suggest later he listens to Mary, too, though we'll get into that. I actually have a book on silence that I read out loud just for fun. Um, no, I, have a, I have a book on, on silence, of all things. And, and it's an interesting thing to consider as a sort of underappreciated spiritual discipline. And in the book, it identifies silence as the positive attitude of someone who prepares to welcome God by listening. Isn't that good? It's a positive attitude of someone who, pre is, who prepares to welcome God by listening. And I like that. And I think what we see in Joseph is someone who listens, and of course, more than that, responds to what he hears very well. I would say this is your path to peace. Be quick to hear quiet down, and then ready to obey once the word is spoken. Be as Samuel before the Lord. Be ready to say, here I am, your servant hears. So we see Joseph the silent, Saint Joseph the silent, and we also see Joseph um, as a fulfillment of another Joseph. Now it's pretty easy to point out the parallels between Joseph of the Gospels and Joseph of Genesis. Christians in every generation, every age have been quick to point this out. There's the names, of course. That was your first lead. Uh, which means God will increase. And then you see that they are both sons of Jacob. You can see in Matthew 1.16 that Joseph's dad was actually named Jacob. Both are spoken to through dreams. Both are called righteous men. And their righteousness is emphasized by chastity. Genesis is Joseph. His big moral win was not being tempted by a certain woman. Joseph of the Gospels keeps himself from Mary until after Jesus is born. And this is pointed out and in Joseph's favor, as a compliment to Joseph. Now, both Joseph and Joseph saved their families by bringing them to Egypt. A Joseph of Genesis foreshadows the Joseph of the Gospel. Now, this is interesting to me because all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which you have to say in that rhythm, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels begin by echoing the book of Genesis. Matthew begins with these words, the book of genealogies. You can look at verse 1 of chapter 1 if you wanted to. By the time Matthew wrote, the Old Testament had already been translated into Greek, called the Septuagint. The Septuagint named the first book of the Bible Genesis. That's its Greek name, not its Hebrew name. And Matthew, writing in Greek, begins his first book like this. This is in Greek, Biblos Genesios. He is literally claiming to write a new book of Genesis. That's what Matthew is doing. And throughout the Gospel, he quotes the Old Testament, showing Christ to be the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that preceded him. And Matthew's not alone here. Luke does the same thing, but with Mary. He places Mary at the front of the gospel and shows her to be the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve in the garden, that there would come a man born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. 
And then both Mark and John begin their Gospels with these very familiar words in the beginning. Wow, real original, guys. <laughs> I can't imagine any of this was accidental. So we see Joseph as a fulfillment of another Joseph, a strong, silent type, who fulfills these roles in order to teach people about a new beginning. And there's another role of Joseph, the, the silent, strong, silent fellow, um, who fulfills another role. There's another, another aspect of this man that defines him, more clearly defines him and sets him apart from the Joseph of Genesis and defines him more than his silence. And this, quite simply, is that Joseph is a father. Happy Father's Day. Um, I want to point out something important about Joseph that should be obvious, but might not be. The Gospel is very, very clear that Joseph had absolutely nothing to do with the biological fathering of Jesus. Mary was a virgin. We believe in the virgin birth. If they did a DNA test, Joseph would not be the father. But this does not make him any less of a father. And the scripture backs me up on this. By Jewish law, Joseph was Jesus' father. This is actually the whole point of chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy of Genesis, or sorry, not Genesis 1, Matthew 1. It's Joseph's genealogy, not Mary's. Which means, of course, that Matthew didn't seem to think it important to show Jesus' genetic connection to David or Abraham as much as he wanted to show his legal connection to David and Abraham. How does the angel address Joseph the first time they meet? Verse 20. Joseph, son of David. The, ide the angel identifies Joseph as the true legal heir of King David and the spiritual heir who would then pass down that kingdom to his son, Jesus. Even though we fully affirm the virgin birth, it is Joseph who takes on the role of father in naming the child Jesus. And in fact, when the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, because that which is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and you will name him Jesus, what the angel is saying is, you're part of this plan too, mister. You are going to be the father of this child. You're going to take on the role of father of the Holy Spirit's child by naming him. I'm not, God, God's not going to name him, you're going to name him. We are giving you that responsibility. You're going to name him Jesus. It's not wrong to call Joseph the father of Jesus, as long as you also affirm the virgin birth. Now, Joseph's role as father, of course, goes beyond legal into uh, the more, uh, a more moral sphere. We would all agree, I'm sure, that biological parenthood does not qualify someone as world's best dad. Well, neither does having the legal rights of guardian, right? Joseph did have legal status as the father of Jesus, but he went far beyond that. And as we saw in Matthew 2, he fulfills all the rights and responsibilities of fatherhood in protecting Mary and Jesus from harm, even though that meant fleeing his country to a foreign land, becoming a refugee. Joseph didn't have to do that. It's not his kid. Oh, but it was. And he supports them through the dangers of Herod's reign. In Luke, we read that Jesus grew in favor and stature before God and men, and that people refer to him as the carpenter and the carpenter's son. Joseph raised Jesus in the family business. He did all the dad stuff with Jesus. Luke 2 also says that Jesus was subject or obedient to Mary and Joseph. He obeyed and honored his parents, which means that Joseph told Jesus stuff like, 
don't touch my tools. And then Jesus wouldn't touch his tools. All right? Like that kind of stuff happened in the home of this family from Nazareth. Joseph raised Jesus and taught him how to fix stuff and how to address older people and how to give a firm handshake and how to drive and stuff like that. I don't know what they drove. No, no handshakes were there. That kind of stuff. Joseph did not father Jesus, but he is Jesus's father. I know that's a paradox, but what about the virgin birth and God made flesh is not a paradox. This isn't the real this isn't the furthest reach you'll be asked to make in the coming weeks. Now, in a well-meaning but ill-advised attempt to defend the virgin birth, which we hold to be absolutely true, pious Christians will call Joseph Jesus's foster father. We should not do this. For one, the scripture never uses this kind of language. And for two, words mean things, and they don't mean this. Uh, Joseph isn't a foster father. He was never asked to be. As a former foster parent and current parent, parent, I can tell you they are different. Having been foster father to the twins and then adopting them, to now be called a foster parent would be inaccurate. I could imagine even being borderline offensive depending on the context. Now, this isn't to pretend that adoption is not a thing or that adoption and having kids the other way are exactly the same. Of course they're not. But as Christians, we had better believe that adoption is a path to sonship or else none of you have any right to pray the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's my Father. I claim him as my Father, and he claims me as his Son. Joseph claimed Jesus as his Son, and, and Jesus didn't look at Mary and say, Mother and like Mr. Joseph the Carpenter. He called him Dad. Once in the, when, when Jesus says, I want you to pray to your father like this, call him Abba, call him Dad. He was basing that, as we all do, on our fathers, for better or for worse. Joseph offered Jesus a glimpse at fatherhood. Now, once in the Bible, it does say that Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph, again, to reiterate the truth and importance of the virgin birth. But multiple other occasions, the word supposed is dropped, and Jesus is simply called the son of Joseph, Luke 4.22, Matthew 13.55. Joseph is called the father of Jesus, Luke 22.33, Luke chapter 2, verse 48. Mary, who knew of all people that Joseph was not the father, calls Joseph your father when she addresses Jesus, when they find him in the temple. The fatherhood of Joseph is real, but it is different. It's different than any other fatherhood that has ever existed in the history of the world. Just as the fatherhood of, of God is real, but also very different from the fatherhood you know from your natural father, it's not physical fatherhood, it's something deeper, it's something else, perhaps something even more real than mere physicality. Now, if we're going to consider Joseph in these terms, we see him more clearly. He knew Jesus wasn't his son, and yet he also knew that Jesus was given to him as a son. He knew it. The angel told him that Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, which means this task ahead of him was monumentally important. He knew that the, the child with Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and yet he also received the command from the, Holy, from the angel excuse me, to be the father of Jesus and to take on the tasks of naming him, saying, this is my son. There's a deep 
paradox here that extends far beyond Joseph himself and speaks to the subject of stewardship of anything that has been given to you. All that you have is yours in that you are responsible for it and can't blame anyone else. Everything God has given you, he has given to you. But we say and believe in the same breath that all we have is his. What he gives you is really yours and what he gives you never stops being his. Now this is true for Joseph and it is true for every parent, whether their children are adopted or not. There is a place in the mind of every father and mother where they realize and know that their kids are more gods than theirs. God gave you your family and they are yours. But there's a deeper truth that he is the father that you can't be, the brother that you can't have. Perhaps you need to hear this. He is the father you didn't have and the son that you couldn't have. God becomes those things for us. There's the familiar and mysterious words of Isaiah 9 um, that will come up later today. That's called foreshadowing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Are you Jesus' father? By all means, no. But was the child Jesus born to you? No. Is he your child? No. And yes, unto us a child is born. He's been given to us to care for, to welcome, to adore. Let every heart prepare him room. Are you responsible, in a sense, for the child that was given? Yes, every human soul is responsible for what they do with Jesus. It, this child that you did not give birth to has still been given to you. Now, in the story, Joseph, who's one of my heroes, I think, and he's a hero in the same way and more that every uh, step-parent is my hero who took on children, not their own, and parented them, fathered and mothered them. He's my hero in the sense that every just dad doing a good job is a hero. But of course, he's more than that because his kid is more than that. <laughs> but Joseph, the hero, kind of, he needed a little convincing before he took the, took to the responsibility that was set before him. And perhaps this sermon can be the convincing you need to, I'm not sure. But let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, starting halfway through the verse. It says, After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. You've got to stop there. So it says that they're betrothed, and then it says that he's her husband. And I'm, I'm sure this has been explained to you before. But we don't really have an equivalent in our Western culture for what this sort of relationship looked like. It wasn't just being engaged. They were legally married, but not living together. It's kind of backwards from what people do now, right? Where they live together, but they're not legally married. It was the, it was the other way around. They were legally married. So to, to separate was not just, you know, an emotional uh, conversation, or if you're the worst kind of person, a text message. You know, it wasn't that. It was you had to get a divorce. They were married enough to where they had to get a legal divorce to separate, but they weren't so married that, that they were living together yet. That's what this betrothal meant in that culture. So, now, they're married, but not together yet. They were betrothed, and then Mary is with child. This is a big problem because having not lived, been living together, Joseph knows that's not my kid. Mary is pregnant. I'm not the father. If you're thinking in any sort of natural terms, there is one possible explanation for how this happened. 
but I'm going to give you two different interpretations of this verse. Uh, there's one that has become more prominent, perhaps a more simple explanation, and uh, then I'm going to share with you the, uh, another idea of what this verse might be saying. Um, the more common understanding of this passage is simply that Joseph was surprised when he found out that Mary was pregnant. He was disappointed. He was uh, probably came to the only natural conclusion, which was that Mary had been with another man. This would have been the only thing to think. Now, there's laws about that in the Jewish law. There's an allowance in the law for divorce in this exact situation. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy 22. So Joseph can legally divorce Mary if she had been with another man. But that wouldn't be the end of the story for Mary. If she lived, she would certainly have been shamed. So again, this is the more common understanding of the passage. Joseph wanted to do this quietly in a sort of backroom deal sort of way and give a chance for Mary to go and maybe live with relatives somewhere else for a while and get away from the small town gossip and everything and, and just go live her life. That's the way I've always heard this story told. There's a few questions that this interpretation will, write, will raise. The first has to do with Joseph being a just man. The word means righteous in a Jewish sense. This means a legal righteousness. In other words, Joseph follows the law. Last week, when we were introduced to Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were described in the same way, with the same Greek words, translated just sometimes or righteous at other times. And then because Luke uses more words than Matthew or Mark ever think necessary, <laughs> Luke goes on to say that Zacharias was walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. That's his explanation of what it means to be just, keeping the rules. This description can be used to give us a good picture of Joseph. He is a keeper of the law. Which means we need to look at that law of divorce in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22 says that if you find a betrothed woman who had been with another man, yes, her fiancé could divorce her, but then what? They kill her. They kill her and the guy she had been with. That's the law. Ooh. If Joseph was a just and righteous man according to the law, then this is the law he would have had to follow. Which means if Joseph thought Mary had been unfaithful... And he tried to put her away quietly to avoid the legal requirement of making a public example of her. Then Joseph is not keeping the law of Moses. And then, of course, there's the question of the other man. He looks very merciful letting Mary live her life, but there's some other guy just getting to go free without any consequences. Um, this, this leaves justice undone by this just man named Joseph. Now, of course, this is, this is all possibly exactly how it happened. We read in James that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we rejoice that we will not be judged by the law. We'll be judged by another law, law of liberty. If this is the case, then Joseph becomes for us a beautiful prototype of his son Jesus, who also sees a list of legal requirements against you and says, I think I have a better way, and gives you forgiveness instead. <coughs> However, that comparison can't go very far because we deserve what the law demands, while Mary, in this case, did not. <laughs> and this is where we need to start asking questions. If Joseph wanted to keep the law, which is indicated by the word just, and he also wanted to put Mary away quietly, then it could be suggested that Joseph didn't believe Mary broke the law, that he didn't believe she had cheated on him. Now, this is a, the minority interpretation, okay? Neither one is heretical. You can pick and choose. Okay, we're just kind of talking. 
but it, it does answer this minority report interpretation does answer this question. What if Mary, what if Mary comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, an angel came to me and told me that I would be pregnant miraculously. This is not your baby. This is God's baby. Uh, I have the Messiah in my womb right now. The presence of God on earth is now eight weeks along. How else did Joseph find out? It wasn't public knowledge because that's why he wanted to put her away before it became public knowledge. Someone told him who knew other than Mary or her parents maybe, but how soon? You can hide that for a long time. What if, and I realize these are only what ifs, so just skip it if you don't like it. When Joseph heard that the presence of God had come down bodily in the presence of his bride-to-be, he did what many other righteous men would do when placed in the presence of God and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now we'll talk more about this idea when we talk about Mary herself, but there's an interesting parallel uh, it's tentative at best, but this parallel that those in the early church who were very eager to read Old Testament into New Testament, right? They saw the New Testament is just the, re or the Old Testament rephrased. And uh, they, they drew this line between Mary and the Ark of the Covenant, obviously on an, only in a typological sense, but both are overshadowed containers that God, in which God chose to dwell. And they're like, look, it's like a match. Um, do you remember the story, the Bible story, where the one, the one time the guy reached out and touched the Ark? He died. And so Joseph says, no, no, no. Too much holiness for me. Luke 1 and Matthew 1. Both start their Gospels with, well, a, a rephrasing of Genesis. Both start their Gospels with husbands, Zacharias and Luke and Joseph and Matthew. Both husbands receive angelic visions, Zacharias in the temple, in the holy place, where he does something wrong, where if he does something wrong, he believes that he will die. The angel says, don't be afraid. Why did angel Gabriel say this to Zacharias? I suggested it was because Zacharias' first instinct would be to think that he was going to die, that he had offended a holy God. And God says, no, I want to be in your presence. Zacharias is thinking, I'm on holy ground. I would, I'll be consumed by the holy fire of God. And the angel says, don't be afraid. What if Joseph thought something similar? And if the angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, why else would the angel say this? Now look at verse 20 of Matthew 1. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, usually the angels say, don't be afraid, and you think, well, it's because angels are scary. But that's not this case. This is a dream. And the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid to take Mary as his wife? We could understand some hesitancy in the case of the first theory. If he felt that he had been cheated on, if he thought Mary was an adulteress, but would fear be the sensation he would have experienced? I don't, I don't know. What if he believed Mary was telling the truth? Wouldn't that be cause for fear? I believe, yes, it would be. And the, the first words from heaven in the Christmas story, whether it's in Luke or in Matthew, the first words from heaven are, fear not. Now whether you take the first or second option about what's going on with our, our friend Joseph, what you see very, very clearly is that Joseph was troubled in his mind, and then heaven came and brought peace to him. In either case, whether Joseph is 
wanting to have mercy on Mary, who he believes was unfaithful, or whether he is uh, aware of the holiness and wanting some distance between himself and, and this, the presence of God. In either case, you have the truth of Emmanuel, God with us, conquering those smaller fears and jo that Joseph may have struggled with. And of course, that is the very point that Matthew is eager to make in verse 22. He says, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. Matthew is teaching Christians how to read their Bibles. Um, he's pulling up Old Testament passages left and right in order to show Christ as the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. And, and the, the chapter he's quoting from in Isaiah, it's Isaiah chapter 7, it's a chapter that prophesies peace in Israel. At the time when Isaiah the prophet was, was speaking these words, uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by her enemies, and there's fear on every side. And Isaiah says to the king of Judah, who wasn't a nice guy, he says, God will defeat your enemies, peace is on the way. And then he gives a warning to the king. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's Isaiah 7 uh, verse 9. And then Isaiah says, ask God for a sign to confirm this word. He's going to prove it to you. And the king doesn't. He says, I won't test God. And Isaiah rolls his eyes and says, you're the worst. No, that's not exactly. That's pretty much. You should read it. It's subtext. It's subtext. It's in between. And this is when Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you won't ask, God will give it anyway. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew is saying that the full potential of that prophecy, which, which was fulfilled in part, Israel had peace, Judah had peace for another generation after Isaiah 7. But now this would be, this would be fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In times of fear and uncertainty, God has come to dwell with us. Two chapters later in Isaiah, we read the well-known Christmas verse, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And one of his names given in that passage is Prince of Peace. Silent Joseph. Uncertain Joseph. Terrified Joseph is told, do not be afraid. God is still willing to dwell with you. Emmanuel is coming. Joseph is given peace. And because Matthew doesn't stop the story there in chapter 1, we get to see what Joseph does with this peace. Joseph protects and Jesus. He's a good dad, and Scripture is not full of examples of good dads. And actually, the Scripture is completely full of examples of bad dads. Uh, but Joseph, he's, he's the good guy. In the story of dads throughout Scripture, you've got the one really good guy, Joseph. He protects Mary and Jesus. He provides for Mary and Jesus. Joseph becomes a husband to Mary and a father to Jesus. You have a father and a son, and a wife who is overshadowed with the Holy Spirit. There's a glimmer of Trinitarian theology here in this family. And Joseph becomes this husband, and he becomes this father, and, and we read the passages at the beginning of chapter 2. The angel warns Joseph in a dream to go to Egypt, protect your family, and he does. Does he know the language? Does he know anyone in Egypt? Probably not. But he had faith. And he had a paternal instinct and a strong conviction in his role of protecting the Prince of Peace. 
After a few years in Egypt, Joseph moves back to Nazareth. He would have had his construction business up. Uh, we think of him as a carpenter. Really, he was a construction worker. He was a builder. That's what, that's what the word means. He's a builder. Um, and we know he was poor. Uh, when Jesus is brought to the temple for dedication, he offers the poor man's offering. There's a special offering that was just for people that were broke. And that's what Joseph and Mary offer. So he, he goes back there and... Um, that's crazy. Cool. Um, he goes and he raises Jesus in this, this trade. That's so cool. We don't know anything about those years except for the time Jesus gets lost in the temple. And when they find him, Mary tells Jesus that she and his father, Jesus' father, were worried. The silence of Joseph is equal to the silence of the text on the growing up years of Jesus. But during that time, we are told Jesus was subject to his parents. Mary and Joseph. And it's assumed that Joseph, while not perfect, making mistakes that all parents make, was still faithful in his monumental task of raising Jesus. What kind of peace do we see in Joseph? There's the peace and quiet. There's the peace of silence. I do really believe that this is a Christian discipline that we can grow in. We're too noisy. We think we need noise. We're uncomfortable with silence. The Lord has called you to be slow to speak and quick to hear. Um, there's, there's different kinds of silence. Of course, you have active listening, like we saw before, coming to the presence of God, ready to hear. Um, but then there's a, there's a busy silence, too, the faithfulness. The long-haul faithfulness is usually quiet. It's usually quiet. Shallow streams make all the noise. Those deep ones are quiet and strong. And Joseph faithfully goes to work every day, faithfully, husbands, fathers, all the way through, doesn't say a word about it. Usually, when you're hard at work for this, this, with this level of consistency, no one else needs to hear you talk about it. But setting your hand to the work at the task God has given you, not complaining, just doing the work, there's real peace in that. The real peace that Joseph had, there's another kind of peace that Joseph received. And it was given to him as a gift. And it's the peace that is a gift to you as well. And it's the very presence of God. Fear not, the virgin will conceive, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. There's your peace. For unto us, us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen and amen. <coughs> Jesus, we thank you that you are our Prince of Peace, that we can serve as subjects, but more than that, you are our Father, a good Father, even better than Joseph. You're a good Father to us that cares for us. And this brings us peace. Thank you, Jesus, that you've been given not just to Mary, or Joseph, or Israel, 
or the first century, but we can say confidently, unto us a child has been born, unto us a son is given. And Lord, to the best of our ability, with the guidance and help of your Holy Spirit, we make room in our hearts to receive Christ. As we have taken communion, we have entered your presence, continuing in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayers and the breaking of bread. We welcome your presence and ask for a greater capacity to receive even more of your presence. As your church, as your body, we pray, come be with us, Lord. Be enthroned in our praises and let us always be praising. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.